Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Forward Maryland. I'm Bill Woodcock, and with me today is, of course, as always, this is Jason Booms again. So just to show, Jason's voice is indeed live and not recorded. He actually is here. And again, we'll be participating fully in this in this fine podcast experience. So uh, we are very uh, pleased today to uh, have as our guest um, one of the up-and-coming, many up-and-coming uh, rising stars uh, in Baltimore City. Um, you know, when we started this podcast uh, some time ago, uh, one of the things I wanted to do with Forward Maryland was to uh, highlight people who are doing good things, have a history of doing good things, and are continuing uh, to do good things in um, either their own venue or different venues. And uh, Natasha Gwines is somebody uh, to keep an eye on, uh, not just in Baltimore City, and in the state of Maryland, but also in the state of Maryland. So Natasha, we're happy to have you here today. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. And, uh, you know, um, let without any further ado, I'd like to turn the floor over to you and tell us about a little bit about yourself and uh, where you are now and where you're going. Wow, that's a broad, that's a broad <laughs> statement, a little, about, a little bit about myself. Um, you know, I've spent the last several years uh, developing an organization. I, I very much identify myself as an organizational leader, a grassroots leader, uh, and I serve young women through my organization, Her Resiliency Center. And I very much have come to love everything about her and the young women we serve. And we serve women 18 to 25, overcoming various forms of hardship. We see a lot of sexual exploitation, homelessness, drug addiction, young motherhood, aging out foster care without supports. And what we try to do at Her is provide a preventative support, only asking that they want and need our support rather than making them have an issue before they come to us. Most uh, organizations around the country, but definitely in our area, require you to already be homeless or already be sexually exploited. And for me, in my situation, where much like the women we serve, grew up in a home with a lot of trauma, drugs, my dad's a drug addict, uh, guns, abuse, and my mom was a teenage mother. And you know, I just didn't have the foundation of stability as a child, much like the women we serve. And at 20 years old, I moved to Washington, D.C., packed a bag. And at the end of the week, and at the end of the week, I was in D.C. And I ended up uh, very quickly finding myself engaged in sex work, drinking and using drugs as a way to escape that the feelings I was feeling as I sold my body for money to men I didn't know so I could get by. And, um, and then I was homeless. And it was only for me, though, that almost 18 years ago, my life started to change because I met some women, wonderful women, in a 12-step recovery program. And and I say all that because it relates so much to the women we serve. And and the, the women I met told, didn't just tell me my life could be different, but showed me my life could be different. And as a result of her, I have had the ability to engage hundreds of women every year, see successful outcomes. And, and uh, then start to look at the next impact I can make in, in, in my area, in my city. And, and that's what I'm headed for now and venturing out to, to uh, run for office in the city of uh, Baltimore. Um, but, you know, also prior to even launching her was the experience I got on Capitol Hill working for the former Senate Majority Leader, Harry Reid, where I was uh, mentored by his Deputy Chief of Staff, David McCallum, and then going on to serve in 
leadership roles and other synod offices. That is an amazing story. And uh, thank you for all the service that you provided to uh, folks in DC. And I, and I understand it's ongoing service that you're doing already to help women in, in Baltimore City. And, uh, you know, we're, we're certainly excited today to talk with you about your next steps of your, of your career and where that might take you. So, excuse me, Bill, I could say, you know, I, uh, we've actually set up in Baltimore already. Her results. Right. Yes, I have set up in Baltimore and actually last week uh, pitched the head of um, T. Rowe Price's um, philanthropic or uh, foundation about uh, a social enterprise or program for youth, both males and females in Baltimore City. Oh, okay. That that's well, that's good additional information to have, and that that strikes key to my heart. Uh, having worked with private partner, private public partnerships in Baltimore City, so I'm looking forward to getting forward a little bit, uh, getting a little bit more into that in some detail. Um, do you mind answering some questions? Because I see my co-host busily scribbling. <laughs> Thank you. All right. <laughs> Thank you, Jessica. I appreciate that. Uh, well, my first question is this. Uh, given the fact that many people come to this part of the world with a, with a public policy interest, and most of the time they end up staying right in Washington, D.C., or I've got some friends who joke about being outside the Beltway when literally they live in Kensington, Maryland, which is about a mile away. You can see it from your window. Uh, but you you chose to make Baltimore home. So I just a very fundamental question is, what, what drew you to Baltimore? You know, when I first, uh, I want to say I'm also, I was a student at the University of Baltimore studying for my master's in public administration. Mm -hmm. And and I, I wanted to take that degree and go be a chief of staff on Capitol Hill. And I thought having an MPA degree would trump all my past, if anybody ever found out. And, and I would be, you know, credible because of my education. And, and through the process of going to UB and studying, I, you know, the the program was very much focused on grassroots or local government versus federal government. And it was a great experience. And and through that, I met one of, one of my professors was the director of human services in the mayor's office. And he said, we really need services like Harvey's Lancy Center in Baltimore. And, and at the time, I was like, you know, I just don't know about that. And then I started spending more time in Baltimore. And what really drew me to the city was several projects I was working on. Um, with the business partner, I put in a bid to buy five buildings from the city of Baltimore uh, that had been abandoned for at least 20 years. Uh, I was looking at one of the pictures we saw when we were in the, these abandoned buildings. It had a it had a like a, a poster on the wall that had the minimum wage rate for 1991. That's how long it, you know it had been abandoned at. Four twenty-five an hour, three ninety an hour. It was changing that year, but that's how long they've been banned. And, and you know, we put a lot of hard work into those buildings, met a lot of people, and built a lot of relationships. And though they loved my, called it phenomenal, one hundred thirty-seven page proposal, uh, they decided to sell it to the city of, or sell it to someone in New York. And I see that over and over, and I hear these stories over and over about Baltimore leadership in some way selling our city away. And, and we see, and I think that speaks to the abandoned buildings that, or houses that we have, because a lot of the people who own the abandoned real estate don't actually live in the city anymore. Mm -hmm. And and but to go back to your question, what led me to Baltimore is was just a, a you know a combination of the buildings expanding her to Baltimore, and I just decided I love the city and I wanted to be there and I wanted to make Baltimore my home. 
and I and and I wanted to invest in in the city, but also the community in a way that we could see change happen. There's a lot of opportunity in Baltimore for everyone, for the for for myself as a resident, all residents. Um, there's economic development. There's a lot of opportunity for Baltimore to be, you know, its glory again. And I really want to help you a part of that. So, so I want to pull on that thread a little bit more because I, I was the um, chief operating officer of the Baltimore City Health Department for about a year in uh, 2014. And uh, that was under Mayor Rawlings Blake and used to meet a lot with she and with uh, Council President Young. And the health department is like the ultimate white hat in Baltimore City. It can do no, it can go, do no ill unlike say the housing department or several of the other departments. Uh, I think, you know, you mentioned some interactions with some of them. Um, you know, I can't help but notice that you represent uh, a generational change of leadership in Baltimore, Baltimore City. You're 39, almost 40? No, I just turned 39. Okay. <laughs> well, it's still almost 40. <laughs> I mean, I'm almost 70. <laughs> All right, just turned 39, but, but um, you know, but you're a young person. And uh, one of the things I experienced in Baltimore City uh, is that a lot of people who are, um, you know, maybe your older aunts, uh, my parents' generation, uh, they've given up. And, you know, it's easier for them to um, run than fight which speaks to your experience of that land deal going to a developer in New York instead of staying local. So how do you, how do you build a critical mass of sentiment to combat, you know, this, this um, almost self-defeatism that, that I, you know, that, that sometimes leaders in Baltimore practice? If I answer your question, I think it's the disenfranchisement. Yes. I mean, how do you mobilize, you know, people to to feel like you, to say Baltimore is worth fighting for? I think it's um, engaging at a level where it's engaging residents and the community in a way that that says you can help make this change. Not as a leader or at whatever level of leadership, I'm going to do it and I can fix this, but rather we can do this and we can fix this. And I think when there's engagement and buy-in and and even the buy-in for how it's done changes whether or not they want to be a part of it. Because if, if everyone on the table saying, yes, we want this done and we're going to help take these actions, they can't say, and they're less inclined to say, well, I didn't really want it anyway. And, mm-hmm. and, and they feel like they have ownership. And I think, Having ownership in our lives is one of the most empowering pieces that moves us forward. So, so if I can follow up on that, I think what you just said is 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 if not the key, a key. Um, you know, because what I hear when you say that is community to community involvement and engagement and person to person involvement and engagement. And I can speak to a roundtable back in twenty, well, last year, back in twenty eighteen. Um, that Peter Francho held. And he had community leaders from Park Heights, and he had community leaders from the city side of Dundalk. And they spoke to the exact same issues that are hurting their communities. Drugs, abandoned homes, 
lack of economic opportunity, lack of jobs, but they felt like they were in conflict with each other for resources. And, and part of this discussion, which was only 10 minutes, you know, they kind of started to see that their problems are common problems and that there may be some common solutions to those problems. And it doesn't have to be adversarial or competitive. It can be a partnership. So I, I, I think you've really hit on, I think you've really hit on something important. Thank you. Jason? Can I yeah, real quick on that? Um, I was just curious from a sense of uh, engagement. I, I do communications for a living and I know the importance of, you know, finding the right context and purpose and, and message, messaging to really drive uh, attitude change, behavior change. So when you talk about getting folks uh, more motivated to participate, when you talk about uh, getting people to feel less disenfranchised as though they have a sense of ownership in their communities, uh, how, do you, how do you go about doing that? How can you get people that are, that are time-pressed for a variety of reasons uh, to actually take uh, steps uh, towards becoming more empowered and towards realizing that, that ownership imperative? Yeah, I, the first step I think is, it's gonna sound too easy, but just asking them what they want, mm -hmm. asking them what they want to see. And, and whether that's the person who shows up at multiple task force meetings or multiple meetings about the issues, which I sit on, I go to a lot of meetings in, mm -hmm. in Baltimore, around the area, you know, I sit on the Baltimore Human Trafficking Task Force, I, uh, on the Highland Town Task Force, um, the South Baltimore uh, Workforce Development Task Force, and after a while, you don't want to sit on task forces anymore, you just want to go do the work, and, 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 and we see work happening from these task forces that I sit on. So I don't want to say that, but I want to say that I recognize that everybody we talk or I talk with isn't going to want to go and be a part of a larger discussion all the time. But I think asking for their input and and mobilizing ourselves as the leaders who want to make change to take the to take the first step, carry the weight in the beginning. And that's what we see at Her Resiliency Center, you know, and, and that's a lot of what I'm trying to build an, a, another model out of is the work I've already established at Her and, and the engagement of what do you need today? And, and I recognize that myself and my team at Her has to carry 60% of the weight in the beginning. And as they start to see change happen in their lives from what, what they identify what they want and us, us doing our part, they start to pick up their weight and they and we get to more of a 50-50 so that they are like, they're actually going to show up for me. She says she's going to do something and she does her part. And, and because of that, I can trust what she's saying to be true. And I think whether it's, you know, her resiliency center, a social service organization or community or government, when we break our promises or when we make promises at all, we're headed in the wrong direction. Um, I think you know, one of the things I learned, not I think, but one of the things I learned is that we don't make promises at her because, you know, it could even be like, I'm going to bring you a pair of gloves tomorrow. I promise. I could be sick the next day. And there could be a lot of reasons why getting the gloves from my, my office to them isn't going to happen. And I think even at the political level and leadership level, making any kind of promises, we don't know what's going to impede that and, and, and that, and that delivery. And so I think it's just important that we don't guarantee or say we're going to do anything we can't do and the more we do our part i think we'll engage those that we're trying to get information from but i think the first step is just asking them what they want 
so often we assume what they want. We assume yeah. the leadership that they want. We assume that the person that's going to represent, we, they want a person that looks at a certain way. And we don't know if we don't ask. Yeah, I, I have found historically the candidates who uh, tend to be more successful than I are the ones who do engage a broader community. They'll make it about themselves and make it very relational. They try to build those networks. They try to, and they listen very actively. So it's a, so that's very good to hear. <laughs> so, yeah, and, and to follow up on that point, I mean, you know, what, what I heard was, was to be um, genuine in terms of relationships with, with citizens and residents and, and, not not promise the the stars and the moon right and i think you know speaking to the genuine nature and i think something that i have in my favor at this point which wasn't always in my favor um is my story and being able to and, and i think if nothing else if i knock on someone's door or i go engage a youth or a young person or whatever the situation is and they look at me and they're like you're a white woman you don't look like you have any problems and which is not true i just want to say that uh, but uh my story allows me to connect and because mm -hmm. I share my story and because I'm willing to put it out there, it lowers the, their walls. It lowers their, their threshold of not their threshold, but their, their, it lowers the walls that they feel like they can connect. Mm -hmm. I can walk into a grocery store and someone say, I saw you on the news the other day, by the way, this happened to me. And that alone, like people tell me things these days they never would have told me four years ago when I was still hiding in my own shame and isolation. And and I use it today. I share my story so that other people, men and women, know that they're not alone. And, and it allows them to say, like, I that they, too, can achieve. And that, again, helps them feel a part of the process and not just a bystander on the side of the street watching so, so you bring up you bring up something that leads to my next question, which which uh, I mean, feel free to answer this however you want. But uh, in terms of political strategy or engagement or in just your approach. But uh, one of my perceptions about Baltimore is that it is it is very uh, politically balkanized mm -hmm. uh, with uh, two, maybe three machines in operation. Um, I think there's one that likes to think it's a machine, but that's kind of bygone days. Um, and I guess the ones that I'm talking of are, are the, uh, the West Baltimore Rawlings Blake, you know, uh, organization, the, the Sheila Dixon organization. And then in recent weeks and months, I, I think, Former Mayor O'Malley has kind of started to form his own groups of folks who are interested. He's kind of doing a little bit of a different model. And uh, I don't know if you identify in, in any of those, but uh, and maybe you do, maybe you don't. Um, but regardless, um, the more successful you are as a first time candidate and as, you know, uh, you know, a perceived outsider, um, you're going to run up a, a, against that. And uh, it's not always going to be pleasant. Um, so how have you thought about that yet? And, and how, how do you plan to address it, overcome it, fight it, get through it? That's a, a really good question. And, you know, I, I hear, you know, the perceived outsider and, 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 the the establishment camps and you know um 
And I don't think, and, you know, I haven't, one of the things I learned in the 12-step program is I don't walk around saying what I've done good. And, and, you know, I, and I, I tell stories to people in my network, but like even this, you know, two weeks ago, I got a woman into rehab. I volunteered at church on Tuesdays, passing out lunch and, and picked town in my neighborhood. And, and a young woman came in and she, the reverend asked her if she's okay. And she started bawling and crying. And, and she's like, I'm tired. I'm tired. I'm so tired. And, um, and I could hear it across the room and knew what the issue was, was drugs. And or I assumed it, shouldn't say I know it. And, and so I just, before I made any attempts to talk to her, I walked, I sent a quick text to a partnership organization I had in Baltimore. I said, do you have any beds? And it's a, a rehab program that provides uh, living for up to 18 months. And this woman's been homeless. We see her there every, every Tuesday. And, 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 the, and the partner organization got back and said, yes, get her to this address. And, and I just walked over and I said, if you're ready to go, we have a place, I have a place for you now. And she, you know, she's like, I do, let me get my things. And we have to say no to that because between the church and dinner things, a lot of stuff had happened. And, you know, she's been in this rehab program for, she's completely detoxed um, off heroin. At, uh, well, there's a lot that goes into that, but, you know, she has the, the drug itself out right now. Um, and she's been there for a couple of weeks. They say she, she's been on blackout, so I haven't been able to see her. I'll see her later today, but she's, she looks good. She, she's healthier. And it's things like it's those occurrences happen every day in my life. I, you know, the, even the trying to invest in Baltimore real estate to turn a, a project that's been abandoned for 20 years. And, um, you know, and, and because of the unsolicited proposal I submitted to the Baltimore Development Corporation for these buildings, at least they've been sold. You know, we, they, they weren't even on the market to be sold until I submitted an unsolicited proposal. And, and, and these are, this goes to while I seem like I'm an outsider because I haven't lived in Baltimore my entire life, I've already gotten in and rolled up my sleeves and started getting busy doing work that's absolutely needed in our city. Um, but to the, to the establishment, you know, uh, um, I'm okay not being in any of those camps. I'm, I prefer not being in any of those camps. Right now I'm leaning on my training. You know, I, I'm an Emerge Maryland alum. I've done Emily's List finance director training. I was mentored, you know, by leadership in the United States Senate in that office. And I feel good about the knowledge and the expertise I would bring to any political role in Baltimore. Um, and, you know, it's also our establishment. And I'm not going to say everybody, so I'm not making it, you know, but generally speaking, that's where the crime and the corruption and the cronyism has continue to occur over and over in our city. And I think it's time for some sort of change. And if it, if, if it wouldn't be now, like when is it going to happen? And, and I, 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 you know, how much further down can we go as a city in Baltimore and, and as a city establishment, not res, you know, and, and when do we want to make that drastic change to say, I'm ready, I'm really ready for something different doing the same thing over and over again, as we know, it's the definition of insanity. And I'm just someone who likes to get things done. Uh, I, I wish this were a live broadcast right now because <laughs> I would be hitting the heart button so many times. Uh, I absolutely love that answer. That's a, that's a great one. So I, I'm going to bask in my own uh, feelings of confidence. And uh, Jason, 
can ask ask the next one as you're continuing to scribble. We'll go ahead and bask away there, though. I try. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I do want to take a step back for a moment uh, from necessarily talking about uh, the electorate or campaign issues. Uh, uh, well, first of all, um, going to this idea of the nexus of making a practical difference in people's lives uh, with public policy. Uh, first of all, um, did you used to watch the show The West Wing? It's one of the only series I've watched from start to end. Okay. <laughs> Very good to know. <laughs> and the reason I ask you... I don't watch a lot of TV, so... Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. No, I... Uh, <laughs> yes. I ask because, well, well for several reasons. Uh, one, um, I just dropped a Doonesbury reference to my class uh, the other day, and I don't think most of the millennials really understood what I was talking about. So I always have to double-check with with, uh, with the younger folk to make sure that they... Oh, West Wing, yes, I'm familiar with it. Uh, the reason I'm asking is because there was an episode... Uh, the women of Cutter, or sorry, Kumar, the women of Kumar, it's fictional. Uh, I think that was season three, episode nine, where they discussed. How many times have you watched it? Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, um, where they discussed the topic, or well, the character of Abigail Bartlett discussed the topic of uh, forced prostitution. And the idea, uh, essentially, I wasn't covered in great detail in that particular episode, but nonetheless, it was. I get into the idea of, well, isn't prostitution inherently forced, and therefore why do you, why would you use the word as a modifier to it? Um, how do you feel about that particular issue? So, uh, Jason, that was a real, that's a really good question, and a, um, a very complex question, too, I should say. Uh, the term, there's a, there, I'm going to go two, two roads with this, the term forced prostitution, what I'm wondering back in the day of West Wing if what they were meant was sex trafficking and and rather than forced prostitution uh, when forced fraud or coercion come into play it's by definition trafficking um, the other part of your question is isn't it always forced uh, or generally speaking always forced and in my situation in my knowledge i mean i've I've met a few people who, uh, from sex work, pro-sex work groups, who say, I want to be out there, I want to be doing this, this is something I want to be doing, and and I have to walk a fine line between saying, do you, mm-hmm. you know, if your economic situation was different, would this be the choice you'd want to make for yourself? And and for me, and speaking from my own experience, is that there was no, I mean, I think at the time, I was like, Sure, I can do, you know, like, I mean, I was running from it in, in, media, in the immediacy when I was engaging in sex work. Um, I was, by, by the example of using drugs and alcohol every night when I was done. Um, but I think at some level, at 20 years old, I thought, I want to be doing this. I'm making fast money. I'm paying my bills, I, you know, but I didn't get there on a roll. You know, I was, my bank account was overdrawn. I didn't have any support of any kind to say, you could come stay on my couch if you don't have anywhere, even that, like, like having just a place to be. And so I, it's, I don't think it's a real term, but I call it environmental or environmental uh, trafficking because my environment lacked the supports it needed to ensure um, that I didn't have to live that life. And so uh, I would say, yes, it was, it was forced. Now, from a policy standpoint, I think it's important to acknowledge um the human level impact and our the lack thereof in our city and and sometimes even in our nation, but to go more local, the the human level impact and 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 identifying when we see 
young, I mean, it goes with women because I work with women, but men, it happens to men too, you know, their struggles and not seeing them as criminals, but rather seeing them as someone who just needs a hand and, and how can we help with that hand and, and, you know, and, and now, like I said, I sit on the Baltimore Human Trafficking Task Force. And actually, my first grant for Baltimore for her resiliency center came out of the Baltimore Human Trafficking Task Force. And I'm very grateful for that. And, and, and just going a step further, I want to say, though, there's no way in, in Baltimore City we're going to be able to address the needs, the social needs of our residents without more money. And so, and that comes from economic development. I hate to say it, it just does. And, and, and I don't even hate to say it, in, in, in other parts, more wealthy parts of the state, that may not sound like, you know, the way to go. But without money, we don't have a way to address the opioid crisis, the trafficking or the prostitution or however, uh, whichever one we're talking about that day. And, and, and I think that's what we need to start looking at larger city level plans and not just thinking about, yesterday, today, and even tomorrow, but thinking 20 years out, where do we want to be in 20 years? What kind of city do we want to have? And, you know, I was, I was talking with a former elected official and you, know, you have to be okay being a one-term elected official and, and to do the right thing to get, uh, to get your city going in the direction it needs to go. And, and I, I hear that because when we, when we, hold our, you know, uh, I've seen so often in politics, you know, holding, not doing the right thing that can really help move us forward, the bold thing, because we want to hold that office. Well, how, what good is that office if we're not doing the bold thing? And and I recognize that a lot of elected officials also have to choose between the, the hard thing and the even more hard thing. And, and, and they're not always easy decisions to make, but I think it's important that we are bold at this point in Baltimore City with our decisions because we are in a place where we really need to be making some drastic change. So, so tell me about what you think some of those bold decisions might be for economic development. I mean, you know, I'm not asking your opinion on this specific thing, but of course you saw the proposal to redo Pimlico and help the horse racing industry in Maryland. But, you know, that's something that's just come out. And of course that's, you know, something that uh, Mayor Young has, has negotiated, but, uh, and I think the economic impact I haven't seen, I just saw what the investment is. I haven't seen any data yet on what the economic impact of that is, but um, to ask, to, to ask you your own question, Natasha, what, what do you see Baltimore becoming in 10, 20 years? You know, what, what can it be known as known for, you know, as opposed to that uh, cute little town with the crab cakes between uh, Philly and D.C. Um, I'm not going to speak to the Pimlico only because, well, I can, but only because it's so in flux. And, and right. we never know from day right. to day what the next story is going right. to say about that. But and it also goes to speaking, you know, looking forward and not just addressing. I mean, yes, we need to address things that five and ten years ago and that issue and how it how it wasn't, uh, there weren't enough eyes on it this whole time to get us to this point. But I think, you know, looking forward um, it, with economic development and more jobs and, you know, um, a lot, the statistic may not be exact anymore, but the last time I checked was 40% uh, of Baltimore City is owned by nonprofits. So that alone means we don't have enough of a tax base. And that means we are not getting we don't have enough places to gather revenue for the city. And, and, and I think 
we need to start inviting, be, be more friendly to business development. And again, not a popular liberal concept, Democrat concept, but in a city like Baltimore, where there's not enough money, we have to start thinking about these things. And I've been also brainstorming on on ways to get more uh, residents into Baltimore. And I think, and I'm not ready quite to talk about that here, but, you know, without, if we, I wish there were more, I wish I, I, but if we could get more residents into Baltimore, definitely the the businesses would come because they have patrons. But but that may not happen, so we may have to do the, the businesses and then the and then the more residents. And I, I just think right now we need to be focusing on jobs, and jobs come from businesses. And I think we may be supporting more of our small and mid-sized businesses as well, not just the large anchor corporations because they already get their, their tax incentives and, you know, they, they're going to come whether they're going to come or not. But if we can support our small and mid-sized businesses in Baltimore, we can start seeing them be able to hire more, more residents. And I think um, even focusing on um, Baltimore has a women and minority owned business department. And I've talked to them a few times when I was, in the trying to do the real estate development for buying the buildings from the city, um, I didn't qualify because I wasn't 51% of uh, the business. And I just think that was a burden that really, a barrier that really could have benefited us and me as a, as a woman business owner who's already demonstrated the ability to uh, invest and grow a concept. It may have been through a nonprofit, but it, you know, I, but showing that I've already been able to do it should have been a way to support more business owners and women business owners. Um, the other thing I'll say is um, 70, last time I checked, 76% of households in Baltimore are headed by women. And until we provide more economic opportunities for women to head their household, we're gonna we're gonna struggle because um, if they're the head of the household, they're you know. And without the this, the same level of, of opportunity, or not that we're saying they don't, but just by society, a lot of times there, there's not. Um, we are depriving the opportunity to prevent a lot of the vulnerabilities that happen in our city and across the country. And and I think that's you know then we start to see this cycle of trauma. Um, not not I'm not saying because you're head of a household and you're female, there's trauma's going to happen. It's just that more vulnerabilities occur. And when the household isn't as stable, regardless of who's at the top of the, the household. So, I didn't really answer. I don't know. No, I, I think it does answer. It does. It, it, that did help very much. Um, you know, one of the things we looked at in the health department were was that whole and that was that whole issue of food deserts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that grocery stores were leaving Baltimore City, yet there were more and more corner shops. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, Baltimore being, uh, uh, you know, what I heard you say was, you know, take advantage of some of what the strengths is that Baltimore City has to offer. So, you know, being in Howard County, being the home of, of uh, you know, a large food distributor, Cisco here, if there one would have to wonder if there were that sort of a thing in, in Baltimore City, uh, that were established, say, you know, a big warehouse in, say, West Baltimore, uh, that could help uh, 
that could help uh, reinvigorate Baltimore, West Baltimore. The jobs would be of a level that a lot of local people would work. It could help attract people. And you could, uh, you know, have a, have a few extra grocery stores in Baltimore City to help people out with, with uh, eating healthy and, and making all other sorts of good decisions about their life. So, no, I, 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 I love what I'm hearing. Well, you know, you speak to the, the grocery stores, and I live in the southwest uh, mm-hmm. part of the city, and um, I don't have any grocery stores, and I am not happy about it. And, you know, I, Canton has three in a Target. Right. You know, there are some up on North Charles, but, like, in my neighborhood, there aren't any. And, it, and for someone who had to learn how to eat healthy, and, you know, because uh, – processed food as a kid really wasn't the greatest start to learn how to eat healthy, but somebody who likes to eat, you know, fruit and vegetables. Now I go to the grocery store a couple times a week and pick up just when I also live alone. So there's not, you know, I don't have any, I'm not cooking for people. So I just have get what I need, but there aren't any, and it, it's really frustrating. And to, and for children who are growing and their brains are developing and we're not giving, we're not offering easier access to nutritional food. We're already, uh, setting up our next generation at a deficit. And rather than waiting 10 years until they're 18 um, and then be like, now let's fix why they did, you know, why they couldn't concentrate in school and now they can't get a job or whatever. Why don't we address it now and be a little mm-hmm. bit more preventative about the issues? And, and another point on top of that, not everybody has the same access to transportation to get out to their grocery exactly. stores, in your case, in Lansdowne or Arbutus and Catonsville exactly. to go out and eat. I was curious, since we're, especially since we're dealing at the level of neighborhoods, of communities, uh, when you go out and talk with people, or when people come up to approach you, uh, what, you know, leaving aside uh, names and specific stories, obviously, um, what specific things do they tend to talk to you about more often than others? Any particular issues or concerns that you're hearing? Uh, There's one that comes to my mind, you know, I, that comes to my mind immediately, I haven't heard it just once, but um, they have forgotten about us. And that's current elected leadership. They have forgotten about us. And and I think it's a part of we, you know, if we invest in you, are you gonna forget about us? And that's what I hear when they say that. And and because they don't kind of like back to Bill's one of his earlier questions is or about the disenfranchisement or the not feeling important part of the process for those that are still actively engaged and just on the verge and not wanting to be anymore. They're asking that question. Are you going to forget about us? They're saying they have forgotten about us. You know, that, and that gets back to, and, and we have about 10 minutes left. And, and, and so I want to start to you know, wrap up, but, but that, that's, that gets back to something you said earlier about, you know, um, about uh, Baltimore's, well, what I heard you say was Baltimore's process. And I see Baltimore City as, you know, understanding its problems, mm-hmm. you know, taking the inventory of what its problems are, um, you know, but, you know, is it quite yet ready to do stuff about it? And, and that's kind of my perception, too, is that the city has been told by, round upon round upon round of leaders who come in, yeah, we're going to fix all of this stuff. 
And then not only does the stuff not get fixed, it gets worse. And then they go, why bother? And all that does on an individual level, and I believe it's true of a societal level, it just keeps, you know, it's more than just having a bad day. It's having a bad year, a bad four years, and everything goes down to the spiral. So it's clear that you understand that. And, and maybe I'm asking the same question I asked you before, but, but how do you fight that? Um, there's, you know, I'm, I'm really, I'm one of those people that I, I try really hard to fit a, a square peg in a round hole way too often. And a lot of times it works out for me. I just want to say that, but the, but <laughs> I don't think in this situation, um, it has to, it, it needs to be that difficult. And I mm -hmm. think it's really about the connections and, 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 the genuine connection and the authenticity and, you know, for better or worse, I know I'm, I'm an authentic person, you know, sometimes it, it, I don't show, you know, somebody wants to see me the more strategic side of me versus the connective side of me. And, and I, I think I am able to bring both, but I think if people want really want change and they like what I have to say, and they feel that they can connect to it, I think we're going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't happen, then we'll know that this isn't the right time. Okay. And, and I'm, you know, to be an elected leader, it's an honor and it's a privilege. And it's not something that should be taken lightly. And it's not something that you should just expect. And I think, you know, um, it, so if I'm talking with individuals and they don't connect to what I'm, what I'm offering or even who I am, and they're like, you know, you just, you haven't earned your time here, then I'll know it's not my time. And, and that I will continue to do the work I'm already doing to help make Baltimore better. I do want to bring up one thing. This might, perhaps might be my last question. I don't want to okay. get into that yet, but possibly. All right. You um, don't have to. <laughs> well, one thing, and I was, I was glad to hear when you discussed this earlier in the conversation, uh, talking about the willingness to stand up for something, knowing that you might lose in the process. Uh, I think too few candidates uh, have the office in mind as an end in and of itself, as opposed to a means to do something. Uh, now, granted, I wasn't always the most popular political consultant when I said, hey, you got to be willing to lose. And what, what the hell are you talking about? But, uh, but nonetheless, going to the idea of communications and a campaign narrative, uh, you either tend to find campaigns, especially at a, a local level, where it's either they run in a very broad positioning, they're the most liberal candidate in the field, or they focus on one specific issue, maybe two, thinking that voters have limited attention or time span, and in order for them to be memorable, they need to key in on one thing. And I know you've talked a bit about jobs today, um, so do you see that as your number one of your issue matrix, or are there other issues that you think you can still manage to effectively weave together into some sort of intersectional nexus of, of issues that can still resonate with voters? Today, sitting here in front of, with both of you, I want to say that it's likely the human level impact, because mm -hmm. so much can stem from the human level impact. We have jobs, we have education, we have safety, we have the ability, you know, the need to, for our police department. And, and with the human level impact being the overall umbrella, mm -hmm. it allows me and my expertise of understanding trauma and the human level needs and to really delve further into the more specific issues that whichever group 
let's focus on it. Now, I do want to say that I work in a holistic way, and I think we need much more of that in Baltimore and less silos. And and so when I say talking to the group I'm talking, you know, whichever group I'm talking to, with it, but they want to know what I'm gonna, that I'm going to do for their needs, and that doesn't mean I'm not going to talk about how it will be impacted by this other thing, or you know, without causing too much confusion. But um, I think you know the human level impact and and weaving it through in a holistic way is really important. So as, as somebody who who has seen the uh, challenges and um, you know everything that Baltimore City offers and and uh, to to use it to turn a phrase has has chosen to run into the fire as opposed to run away from it on on a little bit of a lighter note. I know you're lying. <laughs> I love that answer too. Um, what do you what do you love? Answer as many in as many ways as you can, but what do you love most about Baltimore? I love the pride that Baltimore has. I love that no matter what, no matter how they feel, overall residents of Baltimore have not given up. They want something different. They may not know how, they may not know how to get there, but they have not given up. And and that sense of pride and and hope is really powerful. And I think it's something I truly identify with. And, and you know, no matter where I was in my life, no matter what happened, you know, there's always some sort of hope and knowing something can be better. And, and, I, and I really identify with that thread of, um, of uh, theme in Baltimore. That's great. Anything else, counselor? <laughs> Well, what I like to do, um, I mean, there, there, there's a segment that's uh, long running, although we haven't done it on the show yet. It's nonetheless a long running segment. It's run at exactly zero times. Zero times. So this, this is the first I'm hearing about <laughs> this. I'm a little concerned. I mentioned it before. Did you? <laughs> yes, I All right. Oh, uh, well, I am older than you. <laughs> but uh, just so we talk about a lot of different things. Vision for Baltimore. Uh, I'm just very curious if you had to, to summarize it all as you, as you will, and then in an elevator pitch format. Um, so if someone were to uh, come up to you and say this very directly, what's your deal? What is your deal? What would you tell them it would be if you had boil it down to 15 or 20 seconds? I want to be here. I care about our city. And I am a person who can make change happen. Great. Just good. Anything else, Natasha? I think we covered it all. <laughs> I think we have. I really want to thank you. We have we have gone far afield today, and, and this has been terrific. Uh, I have very little doubt that um, the city and, and state will be hearing a, a lot of you over the next 20 to 30 years, and I think that's pretty awesome. Uh, so thank you for coming on. I, I hope you would consider coming on again in the future. And um, with that, uh, we are going to wrap up today's edition. Uh, Jason and I are working on a extra special guest star uh, for two weeks from now. Invitations have been made. We don't know if they'll be accepted. Um, but uh, so if, if they're not accepted, we'll just talk about the person, uh, which is what we do. And you're listening now, aren't you? Oh, I'm sure they are. I'm sure he is. You know who you are. 
and with that, today is Sunday, October 6th. You have been listening to Forward Maryland. Thank you for joining us today. Have a great rest of your weekend. Take care.